Thank you, Gordon. If you have a Bible, can I invite you to turn to Second Chronicles chapter 7, where we're going to spend some time uh, reflecting on a very familiar verse. It's page 442 in the, in the Red Pew Bibles. Uh, Conversation and Encounter is the, uh, is the title of our current series on prayer, which up to now we've been doing on Sunday evenings during these 40 days of prayer. But for this week and for next, uh, we're, we're going to use this time together to continue our series. And the reason we've called it Conversation and Encounter is because that's what prayer is. Or at least it's, it's one really good definition and description of prayer. Prayer is a dialogue. It's a two-way discourse with God where we have the privilege and the opportunity to talk, but also to listen. But as well as being a conversation, it, it, it is a meeting. It's in prayer and through prayer that we engage personally with a holy, a great, a mighty, and awesome God. And so there is this balance between intimacy and awe because not only is he a great and awesome and holy and majestic God, but he is our Father. And so conversation and encounter. And so what we've been uh, looking at on a couple of Sunday nights to date is is how we can, or rather how we should approach this dialogue and this meeting. How we should come to pray. How we should come to prayer. And so far we've thought about the importance of coming in adoration. that, That before we ask for anything... Or as we present our requests to God, and and particularly during these 40 days, as we ask God for direction, as we ask God for guidance, as we long for God to show us the way forward, that as we do that asking, the requesting, that we acknowledge who God is. And that we allow that acknowledgement of who God is to fuel our worship in our praying. And so we come to prayer in adoration, recognizing the greatness of our God. So it's about maintaining perspective. It's making sure that as we come to pray in adoration, we keep God at the center. Right at the core, right at the hub, right at the heart, rather than ourselves. Tim Keller puts like this in his latest book on prayer. Adoration and thanksgiving, in other words, God-centeredness, comes first because it heals the heart of its self-centeredness, which curves in on ourselves and distorts our vision. And so in our praying, let's ensure God is right at the center. Then, Two Sunday nights ago, we thought about praying in expectation, celebrating the fact that God is nothing like the reluctant neighbor in Jesus's parable in Luke chapter 11, who needed to be badgered, who needed to be pestered into getting up in the middle of the night to grant his friend's request. God is totally different from that, says Jesus. God is a father who loves to give good gifts to his children. And therefore says, Jesus, here's what you've got to do. You've got to ask, and it'll be given to you. You've got to seek, and you'll find. You've got to knock, and the door will swing open. 
And specifically, and we thought about this in the context of Luke 11, that when we ask for more of the Holy Spirit, which is what Jesus encourages us to do as Christians, as disciples, when we ask for more of the Holy Spirit, we will receive, we will find, and we will discover. And so on that evening, we said it's so important that as a church, during these 40 days and beyond, we are continually asking God, we need more of your Holy Spirit in order that we will become more and more like Jesus. This morning, we come in adoration. We come in expectation today. And Gordon's kind of already alluded to this as, as he's laid us in our praying. We come in humility. Let me, uh, just before we read God's word, show you a quote from uh, Edward Bounds. Humility is an indispensable requisite of true prayer. It must be an attribute, a characteristic of prayer. Humility must be in the praying character as light is in the sun. Prayer has no beginning, no ending, no being without humility. As a ship is made for the sea, so prayer is made for humility, and so humility is made for prayer. It's an incredible quote, and I know we could kind of like, you'd need a long time to really unpack that and reflect on it. But it just makes this point that humility is an indispensable when it comes to praying. So let's stand as we read from Second Chronicles chapter 7. As I say, it's page 442. So let's listen to the word of the Lord. When Solomon, I'm starting from verse 11. When Solomon had finished the temple of the Lord and the royal palace and had succeeded in carrying out all he had in mind to do in the temple of the Lord and in his own palace, the Lord appeared to him at night and said, I've heard your prayer and I have chosen this place for myself as a temple for sacrifices. When I shut up the heavens so that there is no rain or command locusts to devour the land or send a plague among my people, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then will I hear from heaven, I will forgive their sin, I will heal their land. Now my eyes will be open. And my ears attentive to the prayers offered in this place. I have chosen and consecrated this temple so that my name may be there forever. My eyes and my heart will always be there. Please take a seat. Now I know that 2 Chronicles 7.14 is, is a very popular It's a very often quoted verse, particularly whenever there's talk of a reference to revival. Now, I'm also aware of the dangers associated with ripping single verses out of context and using them in less than helpful ways. And this is one verse that could be and maybe has been abused in that way. I actually think it has been abused down through the years in in a number of ways. And so this morning, I, I'm very keen to set 2 Chronicles 7, 14 in its specific context. But 
I do then want to extract it as a standalone verse. And the reason I want to do that is because I believe it does provide broad help and general instruction regarding our attitude to prayer and how we should approach God. And I, do, I want to do that because so much of what we find in this one verse and in a number of kind of words and phrases in this one verse is backed up and reinforced time and time again throughout the rest of Scripture. So in a sense, I'm not really lifting something out of context. I'm kind of taking some of the words and the phrases and the ideas that are said here and thinking, well, how else do they, where else do they reappear and recur in Scripture? So let me, first of all, just set it in its distinctive context. Those of you who, who know the story know that in Second Chronicles chapter 1, it's that really infamous uh, chapter where Solomon asks for and receives wisdom. God says, what, what do you want? And Solomon says, I, I want wisdom. And God says, okay, you can have it. And in chapter 2, Solomon then issues orders and launches this major building project to construct a temple for the name of the Lord and also a royal palace for himself. By chapter 4, the temple is being kitted out with the necessary furnishings. And by the end of chapter 5, it's completely finished. And Solomon praises God for its construction and for its completion. And then he dedicates it to God in prayer. And as he finishes praying in front of this massive crowd, fire falls from heaven and consumes the sacrifices, consumes the offerings. And then it says God's glory invades the temple. And people respond to this massive crowd that Solomon has been praying before. And as the fire falls and his glory invades it, this crowd falls flat in their faces and just worships. They give thanks and they say, he, that is the Lord, is good and his love endures forever. Again, something we have affirmed this morning right at the start of our service. God's good. His love endures forever. There is the beginnings of a prayer in adoration. Recognizing who God is, he's good. His love endures And as part of these ongoing opening celebrations, God then appears to Solomon during the night. And he assures him that he's he's heard his prayers. And he confirms to Solomon, yes, you know, my divine presence is going to dwell in this place. And then God indicates that, listen, my eyes are open, Solomon. My ears are attentive. My ears are tuned in to my people's prayers. And if certain things happen, if my people will approach me in particular ways, then I'm going to hear, I'm going to forgive, and I'm going to heal. Now, what happened next, or where this led to for Israel at that time, is not for now. But the particular ways that God referred to in verse verse 14 are universally relevant. There's no kind of expiry date stamped on these four ways. And as your readers have said, the rest of Scripture, Old and New Testaments, 
These conditions, these prerequisites, these attitudes are constantly affirmed and reaffirmed. You've got to be humble. You've got to pray. You've got to seek. You've got to turn. The advice that is locked up just in this one verse for approaching God was essential as far as God was concerned for Solomon in his day. And I want to suggest it's essential for us in our day, despite the fact that there's a huge time gap. So let's unpack them and discover more. So God begins by saying, listen, if my people... In other words, if those who are dedicated to me, that's what that means. And as we sit here this morning, that's many of us. Many of us have committed our lives to Jesus. Many of us are out on this adventure of loving God with all our heart, soul, strength, and mind, and loving our neighbor as ourselves. So God says, if my people, if those who are dedicated to me, if you, will humble yourselves, And it seems that this is a critical attitude and virtue. As Edward Bounds said, it's an indispensable requisite of true prayer. There's actually an Old Testament proverb that says, and I love this idea, that God shows favor to the humble. I don't know how you square that with the whole idea, now I know that God has no favorites. Acts 15 But actually, this Old Testament proverb says, you know something, God shows favor to the the humble. And James, in his New Testament epistle, re-quotes this very same proverb. God shows favor to the humble. But what is humility? What is it? How do you define humility? It's actually quite Difficult to come up with a comprehensive, all-encompassing definition. As one writer has said, it takes many descriptions to describe it and many definitions to define it. There's no one easy, succinct meaning. You can't just say, well, humility is this. Yet, we all kind of know when we see it. Which is why another writer has commented, it's easier to depict than to define. And so whenever you see it, you know what it is. I know I've referred to this one before, but Augustine, the early Christian theologian and philosopher, said, for those who would learn God's ways, humility is the first thing, humility is the second thing, and humility is the third thing. In other words, this is essential for Christian life and living. This, this is fundamental in our relationship with God. And one of the striking aspects of the biblical teaching on this subject is how the ball is in our court. The ball's in your court. The ball is in my court. God says to Solomon, listen, if my people will humble themselves, this is our responsibility. It's our shout. It's our call. Yes, there are times whenever we are humbled by other people. Even humbled by God. But ultimately, this is something that as far as the Bible is concerned, we must do to ourselves. So God says, if my people humble themselves... 
When Paul was writing to Christians in one local church in the New Testament, he urged them, listen, you've got to clothe yourself with humility. You've got to make this choice to wear this. To put it on. To make sure it becomes part of your daily attire. And Jesus himself, on more than one occasion, said, those who humble themselves will be exalted. So time and time again in Scripture, there's a very definite personal individual choice and decision involved here. But that then begs the question, how do you do it? What, what does it mean? What does it look like? It's, it's, one, of those, it's one of those phrases that, that say, occurs time and time again. If my people humble themselves, clothe yourself with humility, those who humble themselves will be exalted. And that, that leaves us to look at, well, what does that mean? What do we do? How would you respond to that question? What does it mean to humble ourselves? Well, for me, one off, we're going to look at a number, but one of the key issues to address here is is pride. That if we're going to pray in humility, then pride, which is the opposite of humility, the antithesis of humility, pride can have no place. To humble ourselves requires some honest-to-God heart-searching to ensure that this deadly sin has no traction. It's got no purchase. It's got no grip on us whatsoever. Because pride creates a barrier, an obstacle, It gets in the way. There is no doubt about that pride gets in the way of praying in humility. Pride focuses on due attention on me, I, self. And Jesus raised and addressed this issue very directly in another parable that he told in in Luke 18 about two men who go up to the temple to pray. So Jesus says, two men went up to the temple to pray. One was a Pharisee, the other was a tax collector. The Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, robbers, evildoers, adulterers, and I'm not like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of all I get. But the tax collector, says Jesus, stood at a distance. He would not even raise his head and look to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I tell you, says Jesus, that this man rather than that other, went home justified before God. And then this bit. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But whoever humbles themselves will be exalted. You see, for the Pharisee, he carried pride like a disease. So much of what he did, including prayer, was about him. And so every time he opened his mouth, it was to big himself up. 
It was to announce to all of those within earshot, I am better than you. I'm above you. It was about exalting himself and drawing attention to himself. And as far as God was concerned, it was totally unacceptable. And therefore, his praying fell on deaf ears, says Jesus. Pride is nauseating. It's unattractive. It's dangerous. And it only leads in one direction, according again to an Old Testament proverb, pride goes before destruction a haughty spirit before a fall. Although I love how Peterson captures it in the message. First pride, then the crash. The bigger the ego, the harder the fall. But although pride is all of those things, it's nauseating, it's unattractive, it's dangerous, it leads in one direction. Here's the thing about it. It's hard to shake. Pride is hard to avoid it creeps up on us it's one of the reasons why as we looked at our Sunday evening series on the seven deadly sins that it is the first of the seven deadly sins because in a sense every other deadly sin flows from this one but it easily takes root in our lives and I am speaking specifically here into Christian lives And it's very easy for it to kind of take a foothold, if you like, in a culture, in a society where self and where me is promoted and exalted and worshipped. So life becomes all about me and I. C.S. Lewis put it like this. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free which everyone in the world loathes. I mean, we all hate to see it in anyone else. And of which hardly any people ever imagine that they're guilty of themselves. Pride, it is the complete anti-God state of mind. And so as we think about this biblical instruction to humble ourselves, I believe that pride is a key issue, vice, sin, whatever you want to call it, to address in our own hearts. And I know speaking personally, this requires constant attention in my life. And I know it is delirious who who have that song, Obsession, that has that line in it, I carry pride like a disease. And I honestly do feel I carry pride like a disease. But how else can we and do we humble ourselves? Yes, we need some honest to God heart searching to say, God, is there any pride in here? Has my life become all about me? Am I looking for other people's approval, other people's positive stroking? Am I wanting to exalt self, promote self? So I've got to start there when it comes to humbling myself. But how else do we do it? Well, actually, the rest of Second Corinthians or Chronicles 7, 14 provides a, a valuable insight. Because here's how else you do it. You pray, you seek, you turn. And the first two, praying and seeking, are quite similar. And they are both acts of humility. 
The vast majority of people today don't pray. Or don't look to or look for God on a consistent basis. Now I know that you can read certain statistics where people say, yes, from time to time, whenever my back's against the wall, I I cry out in prayer. But in terms of a conversation and an encounter which is nurtured and pursued, the vast majority of people do not pray or do not search for or after God. God is not the first port of call or reference point. He is maybe a bit of a last chance saloon. But whenever we commit to prayer or praying on a regular basis or seeking God's face, what that does is that indicates an awareness that I need help, I need guidance, I need direction beyond myself. It's a discipline to do this. It's a holy habit that confirms, do you know something? I'm not self-sufficient. I depend on, I rely on one who is bigger than I am, greater than I am, and that keeps me humble. And plus, if you link this into to our first week about praying and adoration, of making sure that our praying is laced with worship, this sustained recognition of God's character. Yes, God, you are great. You are awesome. You are majestic. You are mighty. You are powerful. Well, if you adopt that approach to praying, you'll constantly remind yourself that, yes, God's number one, not me. God's at the center, not me. God's in control, not me. And again, that keeps us humble. We pray. We seek God's face. But it's important to note that this requires resolution. And there is a sense again in which the ball is in our court. There's got to be definite determination on our part. To to seek God's face, and this is what, as I understand, the, the, the actual meaning of this is. To seek God's face is to diligently, earnestly search after. So whenever God says, if my people seek my face, this is about making time and taking time to do it. It's about ensuring that this becomes part of a rhythm of life. A regular practice. And as we approach the end of one year and stare into another, a key area as the people of God that we can take stock of and should take stock of and at times reset is our prayer lives. Do we need to commit, recommit individually and corporately to intentionally seeking God's face on a consistent basis? Has personal prayer Or praying with others being squeezed out of our lives. It's been squeezed out of my life. What can we do in 2015 to recover and restate it as a critical feature of day-to-day life? Because as far as God is concerned, it's if my people seek my face. That requires resolution. That requires definite determination. A commitment to do it. And whenever we make that choice, I believe that is another reflection of what it means to humble ourselves. Because we're saying, God, I submit. I submit to an authority that is greater and higher than I am. And therefore, it's going to become part of my daily rhythm of life.
And then finally says God, if we turn from our wicked ways. I know this won't come as a shock, but the people of God still mess up. Still sin. They, they did back in Solomon's day. They did in the New Testament in the early church. They still do today. As Christians, yes, we believe that because of Jesus, because of his birth that we've been celebrating, because of his life, his death and resurrection, and our belief and our trust in him and all that he has accomplished for us, yes, we are no longer slaves to sin. We're dead to sin. But we can and still get it wrong. Can and still do get it wrong still make mistakes, still go our own way at times. And therefore, we need to keep coming back. We need to keep turning. This is a directional issue. We wander, we head off course, we get distracted. And therefore, repentance, which is, which is really at the root of this word to turn, metanoia, change direction, do an about face. We need to turn from our wicked ways, our godless ways, our negative attitudes, practices, and behaviors. And returning to God is essential in keeping us humble. And there is nothing more humbling than admitting you've got it wrong. There's nothing more humbling than coming before God and saying, God, I blew it. The way I spoke to that person my attitude toward that person, what I said about that person behind their back. I've got it wrong today. And I need to turn. I need to come back. I need to return. I need to stop veering off course. And therefore, confession is vital. Where we cultivate this daily habit of self-examination before a holy God. Where we do consider our choices and our actions and our words. And we align them to God's word. And we admit where we have got it wrong. And this morning as we come to this table in a moment. Again we have another amazing weekly opportunity to humble ourselves. And confess where we have gone wrong before a holy God. And often as we are led in communion here every week, there is those moments where we're given either in quietness or else in a set and led prayer, an opportunity to say sorry to God that we have gone our own way this week. But again, as I say, I honestly believe that there is nothing more humbling than being on your knees, being on your face before God and saying, God, I'm sorry, but I have veered off course. And so as we continue our 40 days of prayer, as we continue to enjoy the conversation and the encounter, let us not only come in adoration, yes, in expectation, yes, but let's come in humility. Let's resolve to humble ourselves, which means we confront pride, we pray, we seek, we turn. And if and when we do, if Second Chronicles 7.14 is anything to go by, then God will hear, and God will forgive, and God will heal, 
And for me, that offers hope and exciting possibilities as we step into 2015. Let's pray.